we stand in the presence of God's word. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. With these four verses, Luke brings his gospel to a close. He began by saying, I have heard the stories, I have researched, I have read the accounts, I want to put them in order for you. We know from the stories in the Gospels that Jesus appeared to Mary of Magdala, that he appeared to two of the disciples on the way to Emmaus. That same Sunday evening he appeared to ten, plus those two from Emmaus, in the upper room. A Sunday later he appeared, Thomas with them this time, and again said, See me, touch me if you need to, watch me eat this piece of fish. It is I myself. And now these four verses. These four. First of all, Luke writes something that may not seem important to you and me at first reading. He led them out. Remember what Rabbi Zimmerman encouraged us to do? To remember that most people who first were introduced to the Bible had to hear it. They could not read nor write. They heard it. If one does not read nor write, one must have very keen memory. And so key words would trigger an instant remembrance of something important. When we say he led them out, that doesn't sound terribly significant to you and me in English. But the word Luke uses is a very significant verb. Let me review with you. Alexander the Great came to power. His Macedonian army swept around the Mediterranean world. He died in 323 before the Common Era. His generals carved up the territory. But soon there were more people speaking Greek in Palestine than could speak Hebrew. And a group of their very best scholars working in northernmost Africa in Alexandria, 40 years after the death of Alexander the Great, translated all of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And the verb that Luke uses here is the verb used in that Greek rendering of the Hebrew scriptures to describe what God did for the children of Israel in Egypt. He led them out. After 400 years of slavery, God sent Moses back to Egypt, told Moses he would visit plague upon plague upon Pharaoh until he let God's people go free. And when the tenth plague occurred and Pharaoh said, Go, God led them out. But it's not only in Exodus, it's also in Deuteronomy, it's also in Joshua, it's also in Judges, it's in all the great prophets. When they are recounting the mighty acts of God, they use this verb, God led them out. Last month, one of the places Gail and I went to see on our vacation was called the Abbey de Fontenot. 
In the book I've been reading last fall, it said, even though this abbey is a little bit hard to get to, it's worth the effort. I talked with Gail about it. She agreed. And so we took a train from Dijon, about 40 minutes to a smaller town. We got off the train. There was no way out to the abbey except to walk or to take a taxi. No bus service, no trains. We took a taxi out to the abbey and spent the whole afternoon there. It was chartered, enabled by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Many of you are familiar with the beautiful Roman Catholic Church out on 101st Street here in Tulsa between Harvard and Yale. That's St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Our good friend, Monsignor Patrick Gallus, is the priest there. Hundreds of years ago, St. Bernard of Clairvaux began the abbey, the monastery at Fontenay. There are no monks there now. It's a museum. Uh, it's a place for tourists and locals who want to come and see. Not very many people there. Gail and I had as much privacy as we wanted to walk just the two of us through this beautiful, magnificent place. The monks arrived and drained the swamplands nearby. It's in a valley where hills come down. They discovered these beautiful trout swimming in the stream and decided they would learn more about trout and how to make them bigger and bigger. And these beautiful trout still swim in the stream right through the middle of the abbey. They discovered a way to harness the water that came down the hills in the streams to build big water wheels, uh, to have a foundry there. Uh, they made things out of iron fashioned things into metal. They had to be completely uh, uh, self-sufficient. There were no towns or villages close enough around hundreds of years ago when the abbey was built. We went into the dormitory, it was called, even then a dormitory. Two hundred monks slept in this one big room every night when the abbey was at its height. Can you imagine how hard they worked in the fields all day? and came in at night and slept on straw mats, 200 men sleeping on little straw mats on a stone floor. Dr. Belden Lane is a professor of theology, University in St. Louis, and he says that the monasteries were designed to help men deal with three important words. Apatheia, from which we get apathy, Apathia, that is, learning not to care about things that are unimportant. Learning not to care about things that are unimportant, like soft beds, like having all you want to eat, like not wanting to get up so early in the morning or work into the night. Not caring about things that are not so important. Asidia. The second word, A-C-E-D-I-A, -A, we would spell it, acedia, which is moving to the extreme in the other direction of getting to the point you care about nothing. So it's learning not to care about things that are unimportant, but being sure not to get to the point that you care about nothing. But if you learn not to care about unimportant and to care genuinely about the important, then you learn to do the third, which is what Jesus commanded of his followers, and that's agape. You get to the point. You're supposed to be able, with God's help, to put God right in the center 
of your life and others right there beside God. He led them out. He led them out of their old lives. He led them out of bondage, of enslavement, to a whole new way of living. It's an important word. Second, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And all the scholars I read this week, every one of them said, this is an allusion to Leviticus chapter 9, where Aaron lifted up his hands, Moses' brother, lifted up his hands and blessed the people. Dr. Fred Craddock said it means he was reassuring the disciples that Almighty God has in fact so loved the world that he has sent his son Jesus that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I told you at the Museum of Fine Arts in Dijon, Gail and I discovered in seeing two magnificent tombs there that there were some little alabaster figures that were missing. And only when we got back to, New York, to, to the United States did I read that those alabaster figures have been loaned to the Metropolitan Museum in New York City for this season. There were a couple of other important things missing from a major museum in Paris, the Musée de la Homme. About humans, humankind, two skeletons, two skulls over 30,000 years old. It was the French, remember, who found that one we call Cro-Magnon. It was the French who had this old 30,000-year-old skull of Neanderthals. Neanderthals who were thick, stocky, short, we believe because they were having to deal with very cold temperatures and the shorter and stockier one is the better one tolerates cold. In parts of Africa for example you have very tall thin people who dissipate heat much more efficiently so in hot climates it may be taller and thinner and in cold climates shorter and stockier. These two skulls are loaned right now to the Smithsonian in Washington DC. It's a part of a big exhibit for this spring and early summer, uh, pulling together all we know so far about ancestors of human beings. We are Homo sapiens. For a long time we've looked for that missing link, that moment when first those who had moved around on all fours stood up and became bipedal. We now know that that happened at least six million years ago. But those who first stood on their hind legs and walked around using their hands were not Homo sapiens. Cousins, not Homo sapiens. But as recently as 70,000 years ago, there were still four so similar, not quite the same. Similar, not quite the same. All of them now walking upright, all of them using hands, brains growing larger, all of them learning to respect and honor their dead, finally learning to draw pictures and then translate those pictures into simpler symbols so that one generation can pass along its knowledge to the next without somebody having to remember everything little learning tools that they could paint, draw, and move to the next generation. The commenter in the Wall Street Journal talking about this exhibit at the Smithsonian said, artists have been brought in 
to sculpt what one of these little characters would have looked like. Little Lucy who walked upright so long ago, more than three million years ago. Various ones have been discovered in different parts of the world, most of them in Africa, as you know. What they might have looked like, they've put realistic looking eyes into their sockets, they've painted them. They said they've noticed that we Americans are peering into their eyes, trying to figure out what was going on in there as these little people had to take on huge woolly mammoths, to take on the saber-toothed tigers, all the things they had to deal with. But for you and me, we believe there came a time when God lifted up his hands and blessed them and said, You are men and woman, you are human, you are homo sapien, you are my sons and my daughters, and I want good to come to you. I want good to come to you. We still call these words right at the end of the service the benediction. That comes from Latin. Bene means good. Diction for us comes from dictare, having to speak. The minister is supposed to raise his or her hands and say the good words. Say the good words over you. So that you walk from this place with the last words being, Almighty God is one. You must have no other but this one. You must love this one with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But guess what? He loves you too. He will help you be bigger, better, bigger, better in your heart than you've ever been before. He will lead you out to something better. Number three. Lucan says he was carried up. And again, all the scholars want you to note here, this is a passive voice verb. We sometimes sing, he arose, he arose, but the gospel writers are consistent in saying he was raised, and now Luke says he was carried up. There's a bigger actor here than the flesh and blood Jesus of Nazareth, and that's Almighty God. It was God who sent him. It was God who raised him. It was God who exalted him to his own right hand forever and ever. Shane Stanton has written that when he was 16 years old, 1986, he was the best golfer on his team at school. A golfer primarily because he couldn't be a football player or basketball player or baseball player because he had hemophilia. You know hemophilia is passed down from generation to generation. We call it free bleeding, if you would. Even a severe bruise received in football, baseball, could cause one to bleed out on the interior. He had had transfusions at various times since he was a child. So he said, I was a golfer. I was president of my class. I was dating the prettiest girl in my high school. And the next day, our family doctor called and told my parents that through one of those transfusions, I was now HIV positive. I had AIDS. And some of my closest friends treated me like a leper. A leper. In 1986, we didn't know nearly as much as we know today. Could not do nearly as much as we can today. 
that Shane was graduated high school, was graduated college, was graduated seminary. He's a Methodist preacher in Florida. He has a wife. He has children. He's the author of eight books. He's 40 years old now. He said, you know, you've heard opera people say, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. And you remember that Yogi Berra used to try to charge up his team in the last innings of the game when the Yankees would be behind and he was trying to get Mickey Mantle, these guys, to hit that ball one more time. It ain't over till it's over, Yogi said. And Shane says, but I've learned it ain't over till he says it's over. It ain't over till God says it's over. The world believed it was over for Jesus on Friday. It wasn't over. He was raised. And it's not over for you and me until God says it's over. Number four. Luke began his gospel at the temple. Remember? An old man named Zechariah. An old man named Simeon. An old woman named Anna. Three hangers-on around the temple in Jerusalem who were told that one was going to be born who would be named John the Baptizer. That one was going to be born who would be named Jesus of Nazareth. It was Luke who told us that an angelic chorus said to the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, Great joy unto you a Savior is born in Bethlehem. And they rush to see. And now Luke brings his gospel to a close in the temple in Jerusalem with the disciples expressing great joy. I told you the last Sunday, Gail and I were in France. We took a bus out of downtown Dijon to a small town called Marcenay-de-Côte. It's in the wine country. Uh, grapes are not on the vines, of course, this time of year. Vines weren't even growing yet when we were there. Uh, but we wanted to see what it looked like and thought it'd be an interesting Sunday in a small village after being in Paris and Caen, Dijon, and so on. And it was interesting. There was a small little Catholic church right in the heart of this little town. I mean, it was very small. There's a little bakery right across the street. All these worshipers lined up to get their baguettes right after church was over. Well, Gail and I went in. We were a little bit early. We sat down. And as the people arrived, at first it seemed to be all women. She said, where are all the men? Well, eventually we had 16 guys. We had 40 women, 56. I'd counted the pews. Just sitting, watching, counting the pews. It would have seated 400. They had 56. But it was meaningful. It was a meaningful hour. There are other places in Europe that draw big crowds. We've been to Szczecinkowa. Szczecinkowa in Poland. There's a beautiful cathedral there. There's a famous black Madonna, an icon. Eastern Orthodox Church. Icons of Mary, of Jesus, of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In 1430, the Hussites raided the cathedral, stole the Black Madonna. They were intercepted by the locals down the road away. There was a terrible sword fight. 
and the face of the painting was slashed in two different places. And those who were there in the dark that night with the torches said, the two cuts on her face began to ooze blood. The painting oozed blood. The folks at Chestakova say they have 11,000 pilgrims pass through the church every day. Every day. We've been to Fatima in Portugal. Fatima, 1917. Three little girls, shepherds. Shepherds watching goats. They rushed home and told their mother and daddy they had seen the Holy Mother. Their parents rushed down. The Holy Mother was not there. The little girls were 11, 9, and 8. The parents told the village the little girls had seen the Holy Mother. And in time, a great church was built at Fatima. They say more than 4 million pass through the turnstiles every year at Fatima. 4 million. Ah, but Lourdes is bigger. Lourdes in France, a girl, 14, gathering firewood, 1858, three years before the big civil war in this country, 1858, a 14-year-old girl gathering firewood for the evening said she saw the Holy Mother. Told her parents she saw the Holy Mother. They rushed with her out where she'd been gathering wood. Mary was not there. The girl insisted she had seen her. Eventually a great church was built at Lourdes. It says six million pass through the turnstiles every year, 150 years later. Why? Obviously these pilgrims believe that the Lord does great things and they want to be in a place where they believe he might do them again.